daily digest of the who, what, and why of Waterloo Region. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's Brenda Halloran. I'm the filling in guest host for today's Kitchener Today show. And I'm really pleased to be back here in the studio. There's so much going on in the world and so much to talk about. And um, I bet all of you are feeling the same as I am. It's overwhelming. I was just listening to the news about what's happening in Ukraine and and the mayor of the city talking about their hospitals being being bombed and people not having food and water. And, and I just keep thinking about us here and what it would be like for us. And the images we're seeing on the televisions, uh, honestly, it's it's really, it, it's just so heartbreaking. It's, it's really hard to take on, take in. Um, but we have a good show today, and we're going to be speaking about a lot of interesting topics, very different things. Uh, our first topic today will be about the escalating opioid crisis in our region. We're also going to be talking to um, a, a gentleman from Airbnb, and the, he's going to tell us what they're doing to help the citizens of Ukraine. It's amazing what the, this organization is doing. We're going to be having a local community member come uh, speak to us. She immigrated to Canada when she was 12, and she still has family and friends in Ukraine. And again, the, the trauma and the, the horror of being a family member here and wondering what's happening to your family and friends there. Of course, we're going to have to talk about masks coming off and having naked faces. Are we ready to have naked faces again? Two years. Two years we've been wearing these beautiful things. And, you know, I, I think about all of the masks that have been thrown out. There are billions and billions of masks globally, the impact on just waste management. But also, how many masks did you buy? Do you have one for every single outfit? Um, do you coordinate your mask? You know, it's been quite a, quite an interesting thing to watch how people are dealing with masks. But I would like people to call in and um, let's talk about how you're feeling about it. Are you ready to take your mask off? Are you ready to send your kids to school without a mask? Are you ready to go to a big event without a mask? It's going to be an interesting discussion, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. We're going to do our, our um, kind of our pet peeve segment, but today we're going to be talking about who have you met that's a famous person or who would you like to meet that's famous and have you ever been told you look like someone famous? So start thinking about that and get ready to call in. And then the last half hour segment, we're going to talk again to uh, two local business people about the impact of, of the last two years of the pandemic and being shut down and opened again and shut down and opened again and how it's affected them, their business, and how they're, they're dealing with things and what, this, what do they think the future looks like for them. So it's, we've got lots going on and lots to talk about today. My first guest is someone who I've known for an awfully long time, and I, I have such deep respect and admiration for him. We go back a long, long time, and it's Michael Parkinson. And Michael is the drug strategy specialist and the, with the community engagement coordinator at the region of Waterloo. And um, I just read a local news report that it says more than 250 overdose-related emergency calls have happened in the first two months of 2022 in our region. That's not in Canada. It's in our region. So, Michael, thank you for joining me on the show, and um, we have a lot to talk about. Good afternoon, Brenda. Lovely to hear your voice again. You too. Um, we go back a long ways when you've been you've been working so much within this community on issues of um, 
uh, crime prevention, on on drug prevention. You've you've been a, such a, such a, a local voice and a strong strong advocate for these topics. And I'd love if you could share with us what's happening in the region. What's the reality of what's happening in our region? Well, uh, thank you. And it's it's I have to say it's been a privilege. Um, to work at the, the Waterloo Region Crime Prevention Council. It's a, a unique model, a uh, national model for crime prevention through social development in Canada. And uh, it's provided um, a really fantastic space to engage in innovative and, and, and collaborative strategies. And that certainly includes drug-related work. And, uh, you know, I wish I had better news for the yeah. listeners out there, but uh, there is no sign that the drug poisoning crisis is going away uh, soon enough and um, part of that as you say is reflected in um, the, the hundreds of calls that paramedics police and fire uh, receive for for people who call 911 we know that many people do not call 911 during an overdose emergency so it's a, it's an underrepresentation and then when it comes to you know the most basic of indicators and that is whether someone lives or dies um, well, the data it continues to go the wrong way. And uh, so in the first, in January of uh, this year, uh, 16 people in Waterloo Region lost their lives to an accidental drug poisoning. Wow. So m- most of those would be um, accidental. Most of them would include an opioid like a fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the unregulated market um, is unregulated. So there are no quality control standards. And as you know, um, from your career in in, in, in in municipal government and elsewhere, it's so hard to find the funding uh, to engage in upstream prevention work. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where the real value is for, for taxpayers. Unfortunately, we have a ways to go. Yeah, we sure do. And, and this isn't new. This has been ongoing for years and years and years. We've, we've been raising the alarm and talking about it and trying to get the, the supports in place. And I think there was a lot of pushback from the local communities when we were looking at safe injection sites and um, the fear that people had of, of what would be happening in their neighborhoods if, if these facilities came in. Can you kind of talk to us about what has been happening in that, that area? Yeah, uh, supervised consumption sites yes. are uh, controversial um, in a way that, you know, siting and uh, other health facilities are not. And um, I think it would be the opinion of, of colleagues right across uh, Canada that there is a different standard applied to um, this particular crisis. Uh, despite the scale of the crisis, despite the, the longevity of it, um, I am thinking of a... Um, federal meeting I was at in 2016. It was uh, it was fairly new. There was a new federal government in town and Minister Phil Pott had convened coroners and mostly medical people, uh, myself, um, for an opioid summit. And it was at that time that Minister Phil Pott uh, said that this is a national emergency mm-hmm. um, and we'll need all the tools in the toolbox to combat it. What we have not seen in those five and a half years is a uh, an urgent or, or proportional response. And part of that, as you say, is um, related to that different standard. I mean, we don't hold public consultation meetings when it comes to locating a diabetes clinic or a, a cancer clinic, mm-hmm. for example, right? But those are health issues. And and drug-related issues are uh, certainly a health issue, a social issue. Um, so there's a lot, I, I mean, I think my colleagues would say that there's a lot of baked-in uh, discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, stigmatization, and stereotypes when it comes to 
uh, wrapping our heads around this crisis and, and really providing that full-scale response that we've seen with uh, COVID, for example, with um, other common but less in, um, uh, other forms of death and injury like you know motor vehicle collisions or uh, influenza, H1N1, SARS, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, you'll, you'll remember 2003 when SARS first hit um, mm-hmm. uh, really in Ontario. There were 44 deaths across Canada total. Um, mm-hmm. And w- w- one of the recommendations out of the Naylor Commission at that time was to separate the politics from the science. And um, this is one of those issues where it's been hard to extract um, uh, the, the, the politics from the science. And so you see these issues ending up. Uh, at municipal councils, where where the where the rubber really hits the road, where mm-hmm. democracy uh, can take place, and it's uh, unfair, I think, to municipal councils right across uh, the country that um, uh, sort of the abdication of uh, of a fulsome response at senior levels has meant that you know local councillors have to decide on mm-hmm. supervised consumption sites and so on. So uh, the solutions are not complex, um, but uh, the, the will to implement them uh, remains uh, uh, elusive. And that's, of course, reflected in the fatality. You know, that's such an interesting point, too, about how, how this issue has landed on, on the doorsteps of municipal councils. And it pits neighbor against neighbor and, and politicians against politician. Because, you, you know, you're afraid to make any decisions that will upset a larger portion of your votership or, or your, you know, your, your the people that live in these neighbors, neighborhoods, but we have to do something. And, and it is a health issue. It is a social issue. But it shouldn't be decided upon by, at the local areas of government. It should be decided upon and funded and, and, um, by, by the provincial and federal governments because that, that's where their mandates are. Municipal government isn't mandated to provide health care services. It's, yeah. it's provincial governments. And as you say, like 2016, they were talking about it. And what, what changes have we seen? What I'm curious if you, you know, um, or if you want to answer this, is are we equipped to deal with this situation? Like they, in, in the report I'm reading, it says an overdose alert was issued in the region last week. After staff at the Consumption and Treatment Services site in Kitchen responded to 11 overdoses in three days. Like, this is something we hardly even talk about. Yeah, you're right. Um, so I think the, the solutions are, 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 are pretty clear in, in, uh, among people who are paying attention, like the Crime Prevention Council and, mm-hmm. and, and now a few others across Canada. Um, but everything has been a struggle, um, relentless advocacy, and mm-hmm. that's something you know about in you know in, in, in other areas of your work. How difficult it can be move, how difficult it is to to move the dial on yeah. important issues. And um, I mean, it was a, out of that opioid summit that I mentioned in 2016. I mean, the big win was um, after uh, seven years of advocacy was uh, a commitment from the federal government to count the dead bodies oh my. in something approaching real time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a win <laughs> because up until then, we, we had no idea really mm-hmm. on a national scale. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I look for, and you're right, like the health is squarely in the jurisdiction of federal and provincial governments um, and, and all the protocols that, you know, sort of, uh, protect consumer safety in other drugs, uh, foods, uh, consumer products. 
they're, they exist, mm-hmm. and they are not being applied um, to the unregulated market because it is, by nature, um, we still exist in this era of prohibition. And the, the Crime Prevention Council has recently, you know, taken a uh, position on um, the best drug policy model mm-hmm. um, for, for the future and um, have firmly rejected prohibition. And, you know, after 114 years of it, mm-hmm. um, uh, without throwing any shade on my colleagues on in enforcement and justice, um, uh, but we spend billions of dollars to incarcerate uh, um, each and every year across Canada. And we could not find any evidence that prohibition mm-hmm. positively affects either, de- either the demand for unregulated substances or uh, makes the supply uh, safer or reduces it. Uh, quite the contrary, the, the trend is substances become more dangerous. So you see alerts like that appear very frequently now. And, um, you know, for a few years, we now have benzodiazepines uh, showing up in, in the drug supply. We have xylazines, all these chemical compounds that are not fit for human consumption, but for people who are addicted or dependent, they are going to access the unregulated market because they are really self-managing a, a health condition, and that is withdrawal. And for people who use occasionally, whether it's cocaine or crystal methamphetamine, I mean, they don't know what they're getting anymore, and um, there's a high risk of death. So, um, you know, you know, we developed a bit of a four-pillar approach saying, you know, prevention is where the value is um, for the taxpayers. Uh, it offers the best return in terms of uh, improving health and safety. That's challenging to fund, um, but we've seen other countries do it and do it well. Iceland, for example. And then some of the other areas like harm reduction and, and treatment, um, they're important, but they're downstream. And now the scale of the crisis is so overwhelming, um, it, it's it's really questionable whether we'll ever be able to, to keep up. And then, you know, and despite the best efforts of folks in enforcement and justice systems, um, uh, there is no indication that, um, that that improves the health and safety of communities overall, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, we've taken that broader kind of legislative look, but we know in the meantime there are solutions that are sitting on the table and for lack of funding. And supervised mm-hmm. consumption mm-hmm. Uh, services would be part of that. Um, and there's, you know, less controversial models than the one that, uh, for example, exists on Duke Street. And even the ones that do, I mean, we look at coroner data, most people die from inhaling their substances. That's not permitted in supervised oh. consumption sites in Ontario, right? So we're wow. we're missing all these key mm-hmm. steps. And uh, anytime, I mean, I think the council has done a really good job of involving those most affected, whether it's parents or, or children, people who use drugs, people who used to use drugs, having them around the table and coming up with solutions that make sense on the ground, Um uh, but we need, you know, we really need that, that political will to, uh, to take it to the next level. And unfortunately, uh, we don't appear to be there yet. It's been a long time coming. Uh, it's Michael, a long time coming. It, yeah. it, and, it, you know, anything that's preventive, uh, any type of prevention to help people, like people experiencing homelessness, drug addictions, we don't seem to be able to find the money for these people. Yeah, it, it's it's a curious response. Uh, like when you look at the whole system, um, What's a good example? You know, you know the story of Million Dollar Murray, right? Uh, yes, that made yeah. the rounds. Um, I think more than ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Story of a guy who was chronically homeless, uh, had a, a, a an issue with alcohol consumption. Uh, he was in the U.S. 
And I think two police officers, you know, they were picking him up, throwing him in jail, picking him up, throwing him in jail. It was a, that revolving door. And um, they knocked their heads together and said, it would just be cheaper for taxpayers if we bought the guy a, a, an apartment. And that's yeah. what they did. And, you know, not only did that save money, but it improved Murray's life tremendously because uh, it's so hard to do better when you don't have stable housing. Uh, yes. In Waterloo yeah. Region, we've seen the same thing when we did our uh, some research uh, in 2020. We, we, we interviewed people who were homeless and um, and uh, using unregulated drugs, the average number of times they were in and out of jail was 12 and rising. Jeez. So that's millions of dollars. Yeah. It would have been, well, there are far more cost-effective solutions on the table than continuously cycling people in and out of correctional facilities. There's, it sure is. And, and we just can't stop um, advocating and, and pushing and lobbying uh, the provincial and federal governments because this is not only a crisis here, but it's a national crisis. And for an area the size of ours to be having almost 100 deaths in 2021, and nobody seems to be taking this seriously or be worried about it, because people, you know, within Crime Prevention Council, people within within the, the health sectors who are seeing this on the streets. But but the average Canadian, the average person within this region has, has I don't think, a, a big awareness of what's really happening. And um, we just have to keep talking about it and bringing it out in the open and and encouraging people to ask the questions why of their provincial and federal uh, leaders. Why is this not being dealt with? Why is there no, no, no prevention money? Why, 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 why? Because these are people from our community. These are our families and friends, members. These are people who we love. And they've got a serious health issue. Not, and it's not an addiction issue per se. It's a health issue. And we need to reach out and start spending money and, and helping. One last question. Uh, I just have another minute. Where are the drugs coming from, Michael? Um, well, so, sometimes they're imported. Um, you know, Latin America would be a source country for uh, cocaine, for example. And sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of the fentanyls and, and um some of the precursor chemicals, the substances you need to make fentanyls or other drugs, um, often coming from China. That's a key source country. And then sometimes they're just produced uh, domestically. And, um, yeah, I mean, the phenomena with prohibition, it's like whack-a-mole. And, and I think you would be hard-pressed to find a police chief in Canada these days who thinks we can arrest our way out of it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we had a major seizure, Canada Border Services Agency, uh, I think last week. It was a lot of cocaine. Uh, it was about a ton and a half, uh, wow. about $200 million oh worth. Will it have any impact on the cocaine supply? Uh, not really. Hmm. It might be temporary, but there's, you know, the phenomenon is there's always someone willing to jump in because the profits yeah. are so, so high. Um, at the same time, you know, we have legal uh, pharmaceutical-grade substances that, um, as a as a stopgap, would uh, should be deployed right. Uh, same way that we wouldn't leave contaminated lettuce or chicken on the shelves in grocery stores. Um, yeah, it's it's not a question of if people are going to die. It's it's a question of how many thousands of people are going to die in Ontario in 2022. That's that's quite a powerful statement as as we finish off this segment, Michael. Thank you for the work that you do and, and to the Crime Prevention Council and uh, to our, you know, the police and our healthcare professionals who are, are dealing with this. And um, you're the you're the local heroes. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, thank you for all that you do uh, as well, Brenda. Take Appreciate care. It. Thanks, Michael. You too. Wow, very powerful statement. Um, now we um, have to move on to a break. 
anytime, I mean, I think the council has done a really good job of involving those most affected, whether it's parents or, or children, people who use drugs, people who used to use drugs, having them around the table and coming up with solutions that make sense on the ground. Um, but we need, you know, we really need that, that political will uh, to take it to the next level. And unfortunately, uh, we don't appear to be there yet. Need the political will. You know, it's interesting that a lot of issues that we deal with at local and, and um, regional and national levels all involve the political will. And a lot of the political will has to do with funding, releasing money, um, putting money towards things that, that would help with treatment, with, with um, health issues. But for some reason, we don't seem to be able to find this money. And I don't, I truly don't understand. And this was something that always uh, affected me when I was in, in the political world, that we just don't seem to have the funding available to help people who are most in need. You know, people who are homeless, people who are dealing with, with drug addiction and all that that comes along with it. Um, as Michael said, we can't police ourselves out of this, this epidemic of, of opioid crisis. And we need to really start talking more and more about it and check in with your kids and your family members. Sit and talk with them. Make sure you know what's happening with your kids and your teenagers. Um, have those conversations at home. So now it's time we break again for news break. And, and on uh, our next segment, we'll be speaking to a local Ukrainian uh, lady who has some, some worries about her family in the Ukraine. Thank you. Good afternoon. We're back, and uh, I'm Brenda Halloran. I'm your guest host for Kitchener Today. We've had quite an interesting show so far. Lots more to come. So we have been talking a lot about Ukraine and the situation happening there, and, and I think it's really important that we talk to people who live here locally, who are, are sitting anxiously by their phones, watching television, listening to the news, trying to find out what is happening in their their uh, cities where their family and friends are. And today we have a, a, a really lovely guest, Uliana Zbor... Let me try this again. Zborviska? How'd I do? Yulana? You got it. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> and it's a beautiful name. Um, Milana, th- uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and, and uh, speak with us because everybody in this community is anxiously listening to the same news and watching what's happening in, in Ukraine, your home country. And I understand that you and your family came here to Canada when you were 12 years old. Yeah, it was just me and my mom. So my grandmother and my cousins, everybody's still in Ukraine. So you have a lot of family in Ukraine. Yes, and spread out in different cities. That's why it's even harder because it's not like I'm following one city news. Mm. Um, The western Ukraine is a little bit safer, but I have family in the capital, which is under attack. And I have family in the east part, which is being bombed. So... It is challenging, I'll tell you. So how are you communicating with your family? How are you hearing things that are happening? So basically, before I go to sleep, mm-hmm. um, I send them messages because it's their nighttime. Uh, we have seven mm-hmm. hours difference, but if there's a siren going on telling people to hide, of course they don't sleep. So they respond to me and they keep me updated. And then when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is I check on them. Um, 
so far communication has has been good and it's usually via Viber or WhatsApp and thanks to our phone providers such as Bell, Fido, Freedom, Rogers, I can now call any Ukrainian phone phone number for free. So for example, my grandmother doesn't use internet. Um, it's a relief to call her and actually hear her voice and know she's safe. Oh, how old is she? She's 80. And and how is she managing? Where where is she living? So she lives in a city. It's called Lviv. It's um, western Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's um, on the safer side. Uh, for now, um, she's afraid. The hardest part was when the first when the sirens started going off at night, um, saying to hide because there might be air bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, she called me, like I called her, and um, she told me I might not see you again. Oh, gosh. And that hurts to hear mm-hmm. coming from not just your grandma, anybody. Yes. So, of course, I start crying. I told her, of course, you're going to see me. Don't say that. But she is very sure that she's not going to see me again, which makes it way harder. I can't imagine it. How is she able to still to, to get food? Like, it's there food and water and, and things are working still in, in the part of, of the city that she lives in? So, um, our city has a little bit more food. We actually mm-hmm. de- we have volunteers delivering food from our city to some other cities in the area. Um, she is currently in the village, so everything is going locally, which is nice. Of course, um, when you go to the store, let's say before you wanted to buy a, a piece of chicken and you could buy whichever amount you want, now it's limited per person. You know, I was interested, um, how are people getting money? Like, are, are the banks still open? Um, because this has happened so suddenly. And I, I often think about, well, if that was, you know, us here, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're in the midst of war, um, your job's gone, there's lack of food and water, the banks, are they still open? And how are people surviving just to buy food and, 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 and survive on, on what's available? So thanks to platforms like PaySend, uh, we are able to help from abroad. We are able oh. to send money with PaySend app. Um, it's very nice because you can deposit directly on somebody's card. And for now, terminals are still working to pay with a um, credit card mm-hmm. or with a debit card. Um, Elon Musk delivers some equipment to us that helps block the signal from Russian and helps us keep the internet going which is amazing. And, um, of course, when it all started, people went to ATM machines trying mm-hmm. to take as much cash as possible because yeah. you don't know when this connection might disappear. Yes. Um, it, it's challenging. I've been reading with other cities. People say we have no food. Yeah. Um, for example, closer to the east of Ukraine, they have no hydro, no, no electricity, no water, no anything. And I was reading a story because um, people on Instagram show personal stories. Um, this girl was saying, my family had to heat snow to get water to drink. Wow. And I'm like, this is 2022. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not how it's supposed to be. People heating snow yeah. to drink. And you were, talk- 
It, yeah, it yeah. is hard to, it really is hard to comprehend, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that you do have family throughout the Ukraine and some living in the capital. So can you, have you been in recent contact and who's there? Who from your family is there? Um, so it's my cousin um, and uh, my mom's brother too. Um, basically, when I speak to them, they say every night they go down to the subway station and they sleep in the subway station. This is also hard because most of the people have been to subway. It's dirty. It's not a place to sleep. It's just a place for transportation, but people sleep there. They call it their home for the night. And then every morning my family returns home, and they're like, we don't know if it's still there. Um, My cousin sent me a footage, like he shot it with his cell phone camera, He was looking out the window, and he saw tanks just normally driving on the street. And he's like, well, I see them driving, but I don't know if they're going to turn around and start shooting. It's scary. And um, a lot of people have been trying to evacuate to um, Poland was very helpful, and it's very helpful. They're welcoming Ukrainians. Or even we told them, try to go to the west of Ukraine. And I said, but no, it's our home. How can you leave mm-hmm. our home? Mm-hmm. And I understand that. So have you had any family members who are leaving and escaping to Poland? No, everybody says it's our home. Is that right? They it's, would... it's... Yeah. I understand it because, for example, my dad is buried in Ukraine. Mm. For me, it was hard. It's always hard when I visit there, when I go to my dad's grave. It's always hard to come back to Canada because I know he's there and I I cannot even visit him. Mm-hmm. And with people like my family and other people that are not leaving to Poland or any other countries or even another part of Ukraine, it's the same because there's so many so much things um, that are keeping you there, like even sentimental. Yeah. And especially for older people, it's very hard because they're like, oh, I lived here all my life. Mm -hmm. How can I leave all my life? It's your home. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The stories are just are are just heartbreaking. What um, what message would you like to give to Canadians, to to us who are listening? Um, In the article that I I saw and I love your shirt and you just look so beautiful. uh, You had said, I'm physically here, but my heart is there. Like how, That's how I feel. How do you respond, right? How do you, how do you even respond to that when, when you think about it? So, basically, even when I work, even when I do my daily things like cooking, I still think my mind is in Ukraine. I read the news. I don't, it's like living physically here, walking the street, mm-hmm. but in your head, you see a different picture. Yeah. You see a picture of your home of your family, you see the picture of the shootings, of everything. It's it's hard because you feel like you're being torn apart. Mm-hmm. And the best I can do here, like I've been trying to donate, um, my friends and I, we collected some humanitarian aid and sent over uh, to Ukraine because people need things like um, hygiene products, mm-hmm. medicine, simple things Mm -hmm. and also there are a lot of volunteers who collect money and buy bulletproof vests they send it off as well 
also we also gather in the meetings like in downtown Toronto we had a huge Ukrainian meeting we were asking for NATO to close the sky because if if NATO closes the sky over Ukraine everybody will be safe because 90% of the damage comes from the sky mm-hmm. that's why so i'm trying to do every bit that i can from here but sometimes i wish i know it's scary there i don't, i know that i wouldn't be able to help over there but i'd rather be there with my family mm-hmm. Do you think that your family would in time uh, look or, or look at immigrating to Canada? I hope mm. because I would I would love to for them to be close and um I would love for them to be safe. But my grandma, she used to live and work in Italy for some quite a time and she said, "You know what? I'm not going to do that." all over again, go to another country, because every day being abroad, I wanted to go back home to Ukraine. So she said, I'm too old to go and do that all over again. Mm-hmm. So I can only hope, and I appreciate for Canadian government to um, finding different programs to have people come here, um, prioritizing visa uh, for Ukrainians, because it helps, especially... If there's a single mother, she cannot fight because she has a baby on yeah. the hand. Yeah. If she gets a chance to come here and give her baby a life and education, it's, it's saving two lives. It means a lot. That's it, my opinion. Are you in, uh, involved with a lot of the um, efforts being done here locally in Waterloo Region? So um, I've been to some of the meetings um, to support Ukraine. Um, you, I have more friends in Toronto community. So on the weekends, I try to go there and help there. We also have a, a Ukrainian group, Facebook group in Waterloo. So whenever I go to Ukraine, uh, sorry, whenever I go to Toronto, to Ukrainian community, I tell the local community, hey, if you need me to deliver any stuff um, to be shipped by humanitarian aid, let me know. I'll pick it up. I'll deliver it for you so you don't have to drive to Toronto. So that's kind of, I, I, I like that, because um, I've been living in Kitchener since November, so I'm like a newbie, but I like mm. how with this situation, I can see people driving with a flag, the Ukrainian flag, and I can actually see how many of us are here. And it, it start, it, it's hard to explain, but it feels better to know you have like your little Ukrainian family around and when even when reach out to each other over Facebook, even they don't know you, they're always very supportive. So really, it's important to have just the support of the community around you, and, and yes. your family and your family in Ukraine know that that there is support here. And I think for them, it's really important to know that you and your mom and uh, are safe here, and that they can rely on you for assistance. The PaySend app is really quite interesting. I hadn't heard of it before. So how does it work? Pretty cool. It's basically it's asking you which country is the credit card or like the bank account you're sending the money to. Then you just have to put the name, full name on the card, and the actual card number um, of the person I'm sending the money to. 
and then I can choose the currency. I'm Ukrainian, Canadian, U.S., mm. whichever other country. And then basically it charges my card for that amount. And within a few minutes, uh, the person to whom I'm sending the money gets it. That's how I've been supporting my family or sending like birthday gifts to my friends throughout the past few years. Mm. It, right now, um, they sent usually charge $5 fee. Right now, they waive the fee for Ukrainian money transfers, which is we all are very thankful because that's how we can support it. That's how we can support our families and other people. You know, that's wonderful to, to know because I, I, I think um, that, that, you know, when people can't get money out of the ATMs or, you know, they're not getting a paycheck all of a sudden, to know that there is an opportunity through all these various tech, techie apps and things like that, that we can get money over to the to people. That's really interesting to know. Um, what would you like to say to, to our listeners for our last few minutes? Um, first thing I would say just, Turn around to the person beside you and hug them because it means a lot to hug the person you love, the person who's next to you. I wish I could hug my family right now. I'm hugging my mom, but I wish I could hug my grandmother and my Mm -hmm. cousin. And just appreciate for them being in your life because I've had people who I've lost contact with in Ukraine, like we didn't talk. But this situation made us talk again and realize that nothing is more important than, than just being there for each other and knowing each other is alive. So that's the first thing I would say. And second, just um, I would thank, thank those who's listening and who's supporting Ukraine because every support, every word is important. I always say that word goes a long way. You pass it to somebody else, somebody else passes it around, and one word turns into this big cloud. <laughs> yeah. And it helps. That's a wonderful message to, to tell all of us, and you're so right. You know, if, you've, if you had a bit of a spat with your family member today, why don't you forget about it and hug them and just, just, just be thrilled to be safe and here with your families because there are so many things happening in Ukraine and for you and your family. Um, please know we're thinking of you and and um, your grandma. You know that really touches my heart to think about her and what she's going through and your family members. So thank you so much, Juliana, for coming on and speaking with us today. It's so important that we hear these stories and hear your messages and and again find ways that we as Canadians can help our families and friends in Ukraine. Thank you so and thank much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And. It means a lot, truly. It, it, it feels better to talk it out as well. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you, Liana. Thank you. Okay, that, on another, that's, you know, it's just so heartbreaking to hear these stories, but there are glimmers of, of messages that we hear from these various people on, on how to send money, how to help, what we can do. Um, every person has a story to tell, and we can learn from them. Thank you so much. We're heading into break. My cousin sent me a footage. He was looking out the window, and he saw tanks just normally driving on the street. A lot of people have been trying to evacuate to Poland. was very helpful, and it's very helpful. They're welcoming Ukrainians. Or even we told them, 
tried to go to the west of Ukraine. And I said, but no, it's our home. How can you leave mm-hmm. our home? Mm-hmm. And I understand that. Seeing tanks in the street, can you imagine looking down on King Street or Weber Street locally here and, and we see rows and rows of tanks coming down the street? It's just incredible stories that we're hearing from from uh, the families of, of people who are still in Ukraine and what is happening here locally. There's a lot of support, a lot of initiatives happening, and um, wow, it's it's really hard to take in. But what I find really interesting is, is the growing list of sanctions against Russia. And the latest one I think a lot of you have heard about is that McDonald's is closing down their doors. They've got 850 res- restaurants in Russia They've got thousands of employees. They opened there in 1990. So McDonald's is, is quite a big big deal, uh, apparently, in the cities there. And they're going to uh, close their doors and they're laying off their staff, but they're still going to pay them, which I think is really an exceptionally great thing for them to be doing. Starbucks has 100 coffee shops. They're shutting down, letting their staff go, but, but maintaining their pay. Uh, Coca-Cola's leaving Russia. Pepsi's leaving Russia. Um, there's a, a big cigarette producer who has a large factory in Russia. They're seizing production, and they're, they're, they have thousands of employees. They're laying them off. Like this is, there is incredible things happening, and you know it's all being directed at the the people of of Russia, who, um, you know, they they are not guilty of this, and it, it, it's kind of hard to imagine what's happening there as well to to people. Um, they're all victims. The, the whole that whole situation is victimizing people who who shouldn't be in this position and you know it makes me proud to know that here in Canada we are supporting that our prime ministers there being very supportive that um, all the world leaders are, are banding together and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future because there's still lots more to come lots more sanctions to come so uh, I just wonder how would we how would we cope with this and what would we do and and I saw um, a clip yesterday on the TV news of a little boy just walking along. And he's probably head of his family, and, and he's about four or five years old, and he was just crying and crying. And I, I have a, a grandson and a four-year-old, and many of you have children in that age range. And can you imagine if that was you? And, and I often think, what would I take? You know, you've, what would I put in a suitcase? My whole life is, is going to be in a suitcase. What will you take? How will you? How will you? How will you manage? So, yeah, it is an emotional thing, and um, it's a big thing that's happening to to the world. And we've got to all be in this together and support our family and friends in any way we can here locally, in in the way that they support their family and friends in Ukraine. So we have um, a really interesting guest coming up on our next segment, and it's um, we're going to be talking about what Airbnb is doing in Ukraine and how we can perhaps support in that way and providing free rooms and free facilities for people. So we're having Matt McNama, who's a communications manager with Airbnb. He's going to tell us what they're doing, and it's pretty amazing, and it's pretty great. So we will talk again after the news. We're back on Kitchener today. I'm Brenda Haller, and your guest host for the show. And 
this, this segment coming up is about Airbnb. And have you been hearing how Airbnb has been partnering with the other organizations globally to see how they can help out with people fleeing Ukraine and needing places to stay? Um, there's, they're helping many, many people. And, and according to their latest news release, Airbnb partners with the International Organization for Migration to support people fleeing Ukraine. Now, I knew that Airbnb was a pretty cool organization, but I didn't realize what they've done and kind of their, their history of how they've been providing emergency accommodation to those in need. And... Um, who would have known? And I, I'm so impressed with, with Airbnb and what they're doing. So today I'm really pleased and thrilled to have Mr. Matt McNama, who's the communications manager with Airbnb, um, to tell tell us and share with us what, what this, this organization, what your company is doing. And it's pretty impressive, Matt. Thank you so much for joining our show. Thank you so much for having me on. I think you've been a busy person. I think you've been t- <laughs> Well, you know, we've been busy right across the organization, and uh, since uh, so last Monday we uh, we announced 100,000 refugees were uh, going to be housed uh, via Airbnb, and uh, it's been uh, all hands on deck since yeah. then. And then, you know, a couple of days after that, we saw this social media post about supporting Ukrainians uh, with Airbnb bookings, and so it's been this two two front approach. And you know, I have to say, it's been remarkable seeing Canadians step up. So, so. Prior to to kind of seeing the social media tweet, your organization, though, Airbnb, had been doing this work for years, kind of quietly uh, doing it? Not quietly, no. So we've been working uh, on the refugee front for a number of years now. Um, firstly, with helping to resettle uh, Afghanistan refugees uh, and, and the plights there. And uh, once we saw the situation uh, in Ukraine, we were very dedicated to ensuring uh, that uh, Ukrainians were housed as well. So tell us how it works. What, what can we do to help? So Canadians can help in a number of ways. Um, number one, I think it's really important to know that Canadians can go to airbnb.org. Uh, and on that website, they can either donate directly if, uh, if they'd like to do so, or they can also um, list their house on airbnb.org in order to house refugees. Now, right now, we're focused on housing refugees uh, in Europe. But that will change as uh, as time goes on, and we're working with resettlement agencies and governments and NGOs um, to support uh, uh, those resettlements. And uh, as time moves on, I'm sure we'll be moving on to different jurisdictions. So if someone is listing their home in, in Europe for refugees, are they being paid, or is this something that they will do for free? So everything, uh, in terms of the resettlement in Europe, um, it's going to be funded entirely by generous donations um, and by the generosity of the hosts so all costs are covered for them uh and in terms of um in, in terms of you know any donations that are made all of those donations are going directly to ukrainians Boy, that's quite a story that's really powerful and and you know you, you wonder how how um how big it's going to get like what's the number of, of houses so far that have been it's made available we've seen such a huge amount of influx it's more than thirty thousand. um Houses around the world that have opened up um, their places for uh, for Ukrainians and other refugees around the world, and in Canada, it's nearly one one thousand. So, you know, what we're seeing is just an overwhelming amount of support. People wondering, hey, how can mm-hmm. I step up? And uh, and you know, it's really remarkable. We're just we're filled with so much gratitude about it. So, the homes of people being uh, opened up in Ukraine. Are you finding 
like there's dangerous situations as well, that these are in, in areas that, that, that are experiencing bombings and things that are happening. Like how, how are people managing this? So uh, it's good. It's important to note that the housing that we're providing for Ukrainians are outside of Ukraine. So oh. it's in areas like Poland, uh, so a nearby region. And that's where our immediate focus is because we know that's where um, Ukrainians are, uh, are going to right now. Um, also important to note that um, we're working with those resettlement agencies to identify exactly where um, where we should be putting our efforts on. Because, you mm-hmm. know, we are Airbnb, but they're the experts in, uh, in refugee resettlements. And uh, so we, we understand our, our place here. How many people do you think you'll be able to house? Well, right now we made the commitment to house 100,000. Yeah. Uh, that may change. Um, you know, we're a very ambitious company, but at the end of the day, it's, it comes down to the need and, and the response. And since the response has been so incredibly overwhelming, you know, we'll see if that, if that number increases as time goes on. And it's also going to depend on how long this crisis happens as well. You know, if we think about it, it, it feels like this crisis has been going on forever, but it it's only been a couple of weeks. And yeah. uh, so, uh, so we'll have to see how it unfolds. So, as you know, here in Canada, you're saying if we can go on the, on your website and just make a donation that would be used to maybe reimburse someone in who's opening their home in Europe? That's exactly right. So Airbnb.org, or if you go to our main website, you'll see a direct link there as well to help Ukrainians. Uh, and that's exactly how Canadians can get involved here. Wow. That, that's really great because that's something that, that is easily done that we can do and you feel like you're actually helping somebody a family you know a mom and her child fleeing this terrible situation um what when you talk about like over 10 years ago you started doing this um this is something i i didn't know it's news to me and i'm so impressed with with your or your corporation doing this so you've you were talking that you've you've helped over more than fifty four thousand refugees and asylum seekers so you're looking at areas of syria venezuela and afghanistan how did you first start getting in, in doing this as a corporation? Well, you know, I think it comes down to uh, the nature of what Airbnb provides. Mm-hmm. So we recognize that we're in a very unique position in providing housing for people around the world. So by virtue of that, we were in the exact position to provide housing for refugees. So um, once we saw this, uh, the need to be met, uh, it was, I think, you know, it comes down to corporations saying, you step up. Let's yeah. let's do what we can, and uh, Airbnb is very, very committed to doing that. Oh, well, obviously. So, can you tell us a bit about the International Organization for Migration and and the importance of your partnership with them? So, I, like I mentioned earlier, we can't do this alone. Yeah, uh, we have to partner with organizations that uh, that are experts in this field, and uh, we're so thrilled to announce a partnership with them in order to uh, to move the needle on 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 uh, supporting uh, refugees and ensuring that they get the support that they need. And, and we're going to be announcing hopefully more partnerships soon so we can continue to grow. Yeah. Well, we, we need this to be done. And what is your message to people sitting listening to you right now? The message we have for all Canadians who have stepped up is thank you so much. We're so grateful um, for all of the contributions they've made, whether it's opening up their house or whether it's donating directly. Uh, and if, for those that are still interested in doing so, Please do. Please join uh, join the cause at Airbnb.org and mm. take part. And let's uh, let's support um, let's support Ukrainians and other refugees around the world like we always have. You know, I was wondering though for people listening and who do own property, what would happen? You know, you've opened up your home, you have a family living there, and there's no place else for them to go. What would happen? Like, what is the support there for people who own homes that they're opening up? 
Sorry, so can you uh, ask yeah. that question again? So, yeah. so say, you know, you you own a home in Poland and you've opened it up. You're an Airbnb person. You open up your home and you have people living there, but then they have nowhere to go after the fact. What what it happens then? Well, you know, it's a real tricky situation there, and yeah. uh, that's where we we would you know we would work with our resettlement agencies to uh, to ensure that they. They have adequate housing for the time that they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it, what, what's so difficult here is that it's such an indeterminate amount of time right now in terms of how much uh, how much housing and how long housing is going to be needed for. And our hope is that this gets resolved as quickly as possible, but we all know that might not be possible. So um, that'll be up to the resettlement agencies to work with uh, the refugees to ensure that they get the proper placement for the time that they need. Yeah, that, that's going to be, you know, something to, to look at and see what happens to people. You know, you see all these thousands and thousands of people leaving Ukraine and heading into, you know, gosh, nowhere. And knowing that there might be opportunities to find a safe place to live through Airbnb is really incredible. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time to speak with us. And um, again, give the people the information about what they can do to help. So thank you for having me on. It's really great to be here. So Canadians, if you're looking to step up, please go to airbnb.org to either donate or to to list your house on airbnb.org to help uh, support a refugee. You can also send airbnb.org to any Canadians or anyone you might know uh, Mm. in Europe or around the world who might be able to join the cause. And let's help spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on our show and talking about this. It's incredible. And um, we, we're just so proud of what your organization or your corporation is doing. So thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. So, wow. Um, my question to you, because phone lines are open at 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, and on your cell at star 570, what would you do? If you own an Airbnb, if you've got a property, would you open it up for refugees? And is there a risk? Would you have a fear? Uh, will you donate? How would you look? Uh, um, find yourself supporting what Airbnb is doing? So we're going to go for a quick break. We look forward to your calls coming back. And this is Kitchener Today. Well, you know, it's a real tricky situation there. And yeah. uh, that's where we would, we would you know, we would work with our resettlement agencies to uh, to ensure that they they have adequate housing for the time that they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it, what, what's so difficult here is that it's such an indeterminate amount of time right now in terms of how much how much housing and how long housing is going to be needed for. And our hope is that this gets resolved as quickly as possible. But we all know that might not be possible. So um, that'll be up to the resettlement agencies to work with uh, the refugees to ensure that they get the proper placement for the time that they need. And we're back, and we're here today on Kitchener Today. It's kind of kind of cloudy out there. March is really playing havoc with our heads, and oh gosh, I just want the sun to shine. But you know, this last call, um, the the person we spoke to about Airbnb and what they're doing in Ukraine, and and how people are opening up their homes, um, their properties to help uh, people fleeing Ukraine is is really really inspirational. And I was putting it out there to people. If you are an owner of an Airbnb, would this be something that you would consider doing? Would you do that locally? Because we know we have an influx of, of uh, refugees from Ukraine coming to this this uh, community. 
And I know the region is working, you know, with other organizations and agencies to try to find housing for people who are coming here from Ukraine. Would you open up your home? Would you be willing to to have someone come and stay with with you? I'd love to hear from you on that. So the phone-in numbers are 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, and cell star 570. So what would you do if this was you and you're fleeing Ukraine and you're needing to find a place? Would you consider Airbnb? And I'm curious as to how this information is getting out to people fleeing from Ukraine as refugees and finding that there are places open for them to stay in. And I wonder, are the big hotel chains listening? Is this something that they might do uh, out of compassion? And maybe people need to lobby the hotel chains and find out what they're doing. You know, we were talking about all the sanctions that are happening to Russia and the impact that's going to be happening to the Russian economy. But the European economy is going to be suffering a great setback and people need to live. So call in and let me know. Would you open up your home to people from Ukraine and give them a place to live? I think I would. I think that is something that I would consider because I would hope that if this was my family and I, you know, fleeing from our homes with just a suitcase with not much in it, that somebody would want to come and help me out. Speaking of Airbnb, too, there was a story on the news we, uh, my wife and I saw last night. Because Airbnb, they're all around the world, right? Mm-hmm. Alternatives to hotel rooms, of course, including Ukraine. Mm-hmm. People are booking Airbnbs in Ukraine, even though they're not going to go there. They're not intending to actually yeah. stay there, but they're booking the rooms so that people in Ukraine have money and resources to help them through this situation. So I don't know if the loophole is, is, is the right word, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's a way of getting money to people in Ukraine who might need it. They, they book an Airbnb even though they're not going to need it, but, hey, you have the money. You know, so really, isn't it, cool. yeah, it really is incredible it's, that someone thought about that. And I was intrigued when Matt said that they read, uh, you know, on social media, somebody put a tweet out on that and that the, the corporation jumped on it and decided that they would do it. And from what I understand, it's that uh, people who, in, who own properties in Poland and around the areas that they're opening up their homes as well. But what I think is really important is that the money that people are, are sending in and donated is to help reimburse people who might not be able to, you know, they're not, they probably are struggling financially as well and they'll get some money reimbursed. Yeah. So it's, I don't have an air, I don't own an Airbnb. I've thought about it. You know, we have a, uh, you know, we do rent, my wife and I do rent at our basement oh, yeah. to somebody. It's a small little, mm-hmm. you know, bachelor apartment. We've thought about converting it to an Airbnb. I don't know whether <sighs> people coming in and out every day and stuff yeah. like that, it yeah. might be a, a bit of a, a pain in the butt. We've used Airbnb a couple of times mm-hmm. when we've traveled around and it's, and it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Although a part of me still kind of prefers the, the comfort of a hotel. Yeah. It's a little more private, but Airbnb is not too bad. We've tried it a couple of times, and uh, yeah, it's all right, but it, it's a cool idea. You what do you know? think about hotels, like the big hotel chains? Do you think they're going to be looking at how they can help out? I mean, they'd have properties all over Europe. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's, I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't heard about that, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And with the you know the turmoil in the whole area yeah. right now, I don't know how many people are are, you know, eager to fly to Poland or Romania or mm-hmm. whatever. So maybe some of those neighboring countries 
maybe some of those hotel rooms could be freed up for uh, uh, some of the refugees. That's not a bad idea. Well, they're going to be empty because not, not, you know, as you said, not many people are going to be traveling to those areas. And I'm sure that people are canceling their trips left, right and center and and don't know what to do. So it's going to be interesting to see how the local uh, hospitality sector survives what's happening there now. And you see what's happening, you know, with the bombings in the cities and, and the um, facilities that are being destroyed. It's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking to see what's happening to those people. But I don't know. Maybe Airbnb is the way to go. We've used them a lot, too, and have had great success with them. It's a really good system. And it's always interesting to see how people live in other countries and see what their homes are like. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've only used it when traveling. No, wait, that's not true. We, Tell the uh, truth. We, we used it when we went over to... Uh, Europe, my wife and I went to London about five or six years ago and we stayed in uh, one of the places we stayed in was an Airbnb. It was actually a Canadian guy oh. who had transferred over and was now living in London. That was kind of cool. And they had laundry facilities right on site, which is, <laughs> you know, a bonus. Yeah. So that's very neat. Yeah. You know what I'm always intrigued about when we've used them in, in, to travel over in Europe is how small their facilities are as compared to ours. Like we really are spoiled in North America for what we live in. Yeah, and uh, a common thing over in Europe is that you'll have a a combination washer and dryer. Mm-hmm. So you put your clothes in, and they come out dry two hours later. That's pretty and cool. It's it's I guess it's a time saving thing. It would yeah. also be a space saving thing. I I have seen those a little bit over here in North America, but they're not as common. No, because I would I'd be interested in getting one of those combo. Well, we like our great units. big huge uh, machines, right? It's so interesting to see how the contrast between how people in Europe live because their their living conditions are a lot smaller than ours. They, they yeah. you know, they're, they're condensed homes. They, they're intensified cities. And we still like our land. We like our space, yeah. eh? I get a kick out of some of these, uh, you know, house hunters international. People are traveling from, you know, moving from Canada over to Europe and like, well, this place is small. That's yeah. how it is here. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the space that you're used to here in Canada, cut that down by at least 50%, maybe even 75%. You know, I, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm always kind of a little bit embarrassed by some of the, the reaction of people when they just look at these places and turn their nose up because they say, oh, you know, well, back home we had a lot bigger than that. And and um, how the real estate people have to deal with being gracious to the comments that are being made by some of these people. But I yeah. love that show. Yeah, I'm addicted to those house shows. Where would you move to? <laughs> Where would I move yeah. to? Uh, maybe the United States. I also like Europe. Like, uh, you know, somewhere in England would be cool. Mm-hmm. You know, my you know my family is from there originally. You know, and uh, also Amsterdam is a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah. We visited there for three or four days about five years ago, and yeah, really liked it there too. So I, I would consider that too. But I, I want to do more traveling though, right? So. Where's your next trip? Uh, really, my wife and I love Las Vegas, and we're actually, Ooh. it's funny, we're chatting back and forth literally right now as we speak. You're uh, supposed to be working, Polly. Hmm? What are you doing chatting uh, on the social on the media? Little, uh, type thing. Wait a minute. The Microsoft Teams or whatever <laughs> it's called. Oh, so Microsoft Teams. we might actually Teams. be booking our trip tonight. It's Ooh. possible. We're looking at uh, 
flight and hotel packages right now as we speak. Oh, that's pretty fun. And do you like to just go and are you a gambling? Are you a gambling guy? A little bit. I'm not a huge gambler. I mean, you know, I'll put some coins in the slot machines while I'm down there. But I just, I, I love the lights, love walking hmm. around, usually see a show. We might go see the Grand Canyon this time, which yeah, is it's pretty what, amazing. a six-hour drive away. Yeah, but it's, it's worth something it. everybody has to see mm-hmm. once in their lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we have to go to a news break. And coming up next, okay, I know we're going to get a lot of calls on this because we're going to talk about masks. And the mask mandates are being changed. There's a lot going on. Are you going to send your kids back to school uh, with or without a mask? Are you going to wear a mask? we got a whole lot of talking to do. So get ready to call in. And uh, let's talk masks. All right, everybody, it's time to talk about masks. We've been wearing them for two years. How many masks do you have sitting in your home, in your car, laying, laying on the bottom of your car? How many colors do you have? Have you coordinated your mask with every single outfit you have? I've seen some beautiful masks been done at, at, in craft shows and beaded and, and oh, painted and beautiful, beautiful masks. And it almost feels a shame to have to uh, think about not wearing them anymore, but that's what's happening. And today is a really big, big day for for Ontario. Who would have thought that we would finally be hearing that it's time to take our masks off? So let's talk about it. So here's the numbers, 519-570-2545. Toll free, 1-800-570-5715 and cell star 570. So according to our premier, and he was speaking about it today, very just a little while ago. He says that starting March 21st, masks will no longer be required in schools, restaurants and bars, gyms and movie theaters across the province. The government said individuals can continue to wear a mask after that date if they choose to do so. On March 14th, mandatory vaccination policies for employees at schools, childcare settings, hospitals and long-term care homes will also come to an end. And masks and face coverings will still be required in places like public transit, long-term care homes, healthcare settings, and shelters until April 27th, after which the requirement will end in those settings as well. This is really a big change for all of us. And, you know, we've been told for two years that we need to mask up, we need to protect ourselves, we can't be in large gatherings. And, of course, with the vaccinations happening, that it's made a big difference in the case counts. But I'm wondering, you know, for you parents, are you ready to send your kids back to school without a mask? Are you going to keep yours on? Are you going to take it off? As the Premier says, we need to move on. Are you ready to move on? You know, um, I I don't know. I'm kind of sitting on the fence on this one because I've had it on for so long and it becomes part, kind of a comfort zone to have your mask on when you're leaving the home and walking into, you know, into your car and then going to a place if you're sitting at work and, and all of a sudden, uh, as of March 21st, um, you can be taking your mask off and speaking to people closely around you. It's, it's going to be a big change. And we've been so Im- impacted by the mandates, by the government telling us over and over again that we need to wear masks, that it's for our safety, that if not, we're going to get COVID. 
And it's really hard to get past that fear factor. But then we ha- now we're hearing from the Children's Health Coalition saying we need to keep the masks on the kids in school for at least two more weeks after March break. Are you going to do that? And they were going, if they have to bring mass mandates back in the next while, are you going to put it back on? And how difficult will it be for people to put their masks back on? I don't know. And I don't know if I, I, you know, I've sat in a few areas with people and I just have that feeling like, well, what if? Well, maybe I should keep it on. You know, it's, it's, it's really going to be a hard decision. So I'm wanting to hear from you. Give me a call, 519-570-2545, and Sal Star 570. What are you going to do? Are you going to keep your mask on for a while? Are you going to tent, you know, tentatively take it off and kind of roam around in a mall or in a grocery store and duck away from anybody who walks by you? You know, what I've noticed, too, with, with the years of wearing a mask is that um, how often uh, I don't make eye contact with people. And, and I find that really interesting. And I've read about how children, especially infants, have been, that's all they've known is looking up to, into faces of people who have a mask on and how difficult it will be for them once we take them off to kind of change change their their um, ideas of what a face looks like. You know, they haven't seen anything below eyes and, and how that's how people have been communicating. So it's there's a lot to this and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because we're not sure what it's going to be like in the future. And to have, you know, little kids, all they know is going to school with a mask on and all of a sudden it's off and will they be afraid? Will they feel comfortable doing it? It's, it's a big thing and we're going to have to be talking about it. I've got Fran who's called in. Fran, I'd love to hear what you, you think about this. Well, my opinion is take the mask off. Yep. I've never, I've never worn one. Just the last comment they were she was making about the kids. It's been two years, mm-hmm. you know. Most of the kids in school have been used to seeing people without masks. I know in the last two years they've been forced on this other issue. But you know what? Through all this, I myself and many others, and there's many that have had the mask. I have never been sick through all of this. That's a good point. I go out everywhere, and I'm involved with people at 20 to 30 gatherings all the time. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, the fear, this is the problem with people. As, as a believer... I don't fear death and all this stuff that's out there. I don't fear that anyways. When the Lord wants to take me, he's going to take me by a Mack truck hitting me or COVID or uh, whatever, cancer. I can't fear death. And that's the problem in society today. Yes, really good point. Well, thank you so much for calling in. We now have Rush on the line. Rush. Hi, good afternoon. Yeah, um... I'll have no problem taking mine off. I don't wear one now because they, they don't work, Brenna. Uh, masks do not work. Um, the only studies that sh- ever showed of, uh, effectiveness were, um, were like the, the low reliability um, modeling types or, or looking back sort of things. Any of the random controlled trials that were done showed pretty much zero impact from, from masks. So, nope. Um, I think everyone should take them off now. The science isn't changing in in two weeks' time, so just stop wearing them right now. So through the whole two years, Rush, you've never worn a mask. Well, I wore it at the at the very beginning when uh, when uh, you know the fog of war was there and nobody really knew what was going on, and then 
you know, as the as the data came out and uh, the, you know, that was back when COVID was thought to be spread on um, aerosols. Now that we know that it's airborne, mm-hmm. um, there's there's no way that those those porous masks are preventing um, COVID from leaving your 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 mouth. Hmm. And were you challenged uh, when you wrote in the public and you didn't have a mask on? Did people challenge you? Uh, many times, yeah. You mm-hmm. just say you have an exemption, though, and, and that's that. Mm-hmm. They, they don't ask what your exemption is or anything along those lines. So it's just, yeah, I had an exemption. And and in the last, I don't know, three, four months, um, not not a single time has anyone asked. Sometimes you get you get dirty looks, uh, or sometimes patrons will will give you a, a hard time, but the the stores, the retailers themselves, do not. Hmm, interesting. Well, thanks so much for calling in, Rush. Thank you. Uh, we have Lorraine on the line. Lorraine, what are you going to do about masks? Well, I've been a total um, advocate for it, and I I think I still will. Like, it, it, let's say in a theater where you're close together mm-hmm. with people, and um, but outside outdoors i don't wear it i'd take it off as soon as i could get outside because yeah. i don't think there's a problem there um and as far as the masks and i couldn't contact well like for little ones that's a different thing mm-hmm. but um when i ever saw someone and i was walking but even if i didn't know them i made eye contact <laughs> and sort of smiled with my eyes <laughs> yeah we're all going to have these big smile wrinkles right around yeah. our eyes <laughs> yeah, so generally, I think it's it's a great thing. I don't think everybody has to keep them on. I'm in my 80s, and I uh, I will use it now and again still. Sure don't sound like you're in your 80s. I know. <laughs> I like <laughs> to be up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling in, Lorraine. And we now have Danielle. Danielle, we'd love to hear your opinion on masking. Oh, we are very excited to get rid of those masks. Yeah. Um we're coming back from Mexico, and our cho- my children are extremely excited to finally be able to see their teachers' faces back at school and get back to normal, somewhat normal life again. How so, old are your children? Um, they are six and eight. So they haven't seen their, their teachers' faces? Well, they've seen oh. them at lunchtime yeah. um, when she takes it off to eat, but... Let me tell you, when we told them that this was a possibility of going back after March break with no masks, they, my son was almost in tears. He's so excited for this to be over with. What do you think the impact's been on them over the last few years wearing masks? Um, tons of impacts with learning. Um, I yeah. also run a daycare and I have children in my home mm-hmm. and they have not been wearing masks at all and they have been fine, but I run a daycare for teachers and the teachers have said that it is such a big impact on children learning with those masks, not mm-hmm. being able to read properly. In the last two years, there's been such an impact on those kids. So hopefully nothing changes and there's yeah. no new variant and we can get those masks off the kids. Do you think when it, if the kids go back to school without a mask and a lot of kids are wearing masks that there might be a bit of a, you know, they might get... Uh, challenged or made fun of like that's what I wonder because I think there'll be a lot of people who send them home eh right so I think what's happening in our teachers are already talking about it that there's going to be a personal choice um and like my two children are so excited to take them off and Hmm. they understand that if people want um to wear them that it's okay like we haven't been wearing masks for the last like six months anywhere Mm -hmm. and except for when they go to school and uh, the other weekend, they went over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and they said, you know, Mom, 
can put a mask in my pocket just in case grandma wants to go to the store. I want to wear a mask with grandma. So, I mean, that is kind of where we stand. It's, it's their choice if they want to wear one or not. But let me tell you, I don't think that these have helped. There's been um, some pretty bad gastro bugs going around in the schools right now. And lots and lots of kids with their masks on are getting sick. So I don't think they're doing much. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, yeah, we're come very through. excited. And yeah, I bet. We're very excited. You're going to have a mask burning party? Yes, I was just <laughs> going to say. <laughs> we are definitely putting out an invite on the Saturday. Excuse me. The Saturday uh, when we get back from Mexico to come and have a mask burning party at the house. Ah, oh, that's fun. And we'll see see who on the street wants to come and join. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for calling in, Danielle, and all the best to you and your family. You too. Thank you. Bye. We now have Jerry on the line. Jerry, thanks for holding on. Are you going to mask or unmask? Oh, it'll be gone. That face taper? Yeah, it's gone. Now, I mean, I still wear it in certain settings, um, more of respect for other people, mm. to make them feel more comfortable. But for myself, um, you know, there's... I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I mean, there's a lot of controversy of do they work, do they not work? But certainly you look at the majority of the masks that people are wearing, they're not medical quality. They're, you know, a piece of cloth that we've covered our face with. Um, Likely doesn't work. And I mean, my concern is how sick have we been making ourselves by not properly taking care of these reusable masks or using them too much or over and over again. Um, And certainly I, I called last week about a similar issue or the topic where I remember as a child, my father shaving his mustache off and he came home and all of a sudden here's this man with no mustache. Didn't recognize it. Yeah. And, and that happened with my kids. I've got a goatee and a mustache I've had for, for decades and I shaved it off, took a picture, sent it to my adult kids and they didn't recognize me. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I, I basically, (laughs) there's a policy. I must have facial hair. Um, they're saying, no, I don't, apparently I got the face that needs to be hidden behind facial hair. Um, (laughs) I guess that's a face for radio too. I was going to say that, Jerry. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing too is with all of this, my, one of the, my concerns is, is reminding people our immune systems are very similar to what our cardiovascular systems are. They need to be exercised. And, you know, there's, there's a fine line. You can't get overdosed. We don't want to be sick, but our immune systems need to get exposed to germs. They need yeah. to be exercised. And just like, I mean, if we become a couch potato for six months, yeah. how well are you going to be able to perform at a sport? Not very well. And and I've, I've actually heard doctors concerned to say we've been so clean, mm-hmm. so hypervigilant mm-hmm. yeah. that something minor that we might have just barely even knew we had all of a sudden could become an issue. And, you know, and again, with the masks, like most of us aren't wearing N95s. And when, when you break it down, there's even the science is saying those are the only ones that were really providing much, if any, protection. Hmm. And again, I'm not a scientist. I, I can't, you know, we do our research and every, depending what you read, there's always a slant one way or another and, and even how we interpret it. Yeah. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many kids come home from school with lots of colds and the flu, and does will the flu come back, right? Because we've all been pretty pretty uh, covered up by all of that. Thanks so much for your call, Jerry. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, and one last quick yeah. point is, 
even communication. I have found it much more difficult to communicate with people with masks because yeah. you can't see the facial expression. You can't see a smile. And it, even sarcasm. Sometimes you say a joke. True, and yeah, smile, yeah. They can't see the smile under the mask and they don't know how to take you. So just even before kids are, are tough enough to communicate as it is because yeah. they're online all the time, now they can't even see facial expressions. Yeah, so. we got to release the smile, right? Release the exactly. smile. Thanks Bring so much, back. Jerry. Okay, you're welcome. Hi, Tom, you're on the line. So let's hear about your mask. You're back in town. Back in town. <laughs> okay, uh, it says... Okay, we're still getting a thousand cases or so in a day in Ontario. Three, four people still pass away. God bless them. But I think it helps to a certain amount. But if you're outside, you, you don't need to. But uh, all the masks they've helped in regular settings, like especially if you're uh, indoors compressed. So I. I think it's up to the people. It doesn't mean that they're they're telling you you don't need to wear a mask, that it's over. It's not over. So, you know, like, go ahead and have your mask party, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I think it helps, even the ones that aren't medical. It has helped. But it's really strange because all the third world countries... They want vaccines and they can't get them. They're poor. Now, here we have access to everything and people are negative. So yeah. I I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to this, isn't it there, Tom? No, no, there's a lot. But uh, right now, I think uh, Putin has gotten rid of the COVID. That's all they're talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> Take care and yeah. good luck. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. Well, wow, that was a statement, eh? Um, yeah, so I think it'll be up to each individual, your comfort level, about what you want to do with wearing a mask and, and how we're going to kind of get move beyond this and feel more confident going out in community and, and just, you know, just seeing each other and, and smiling and seeing people smile. Won't that be wonderful? So um, take off the mask, I guess. If you feel comfortable, leave it on if you need to. But uh, things are changing and, and the sun's Sun always rises in the morning and we're going to have masks or no masks, but it'll be our personal decision. And I think that's what's really important to know is that'll be your personal decision on what you want to do. And and if you're sending your kids to school with or without a mask, and I hope that people, we're all just patient with each other and give each other a break and and don't attack and just just worry about yourself and your mask. You don't need to get upset with other people. Um, The masks are coming off. That's, That's a big day today. We are now going to uh, head on into a break, and I'll be right back. Hey, everyone, we're back, and we've been talking about masks. It's the old to unmask or keep your mask on. That's the question. We've got Mary on the line. Mary, what have you got to tell us about your masking ideas? I'm not on masks, my dear. I am just saying, I just want to tell you that I only came back from Myrtle Beach uh, last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I've heard you maybe two, three times, and I just wanted to tell you that you are growing into the job, <laughs> and I can feel you're more relaxed. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I, I can sense it. I can uh-huh. sense it. I just wanted you to know you're doing a great job, and you're more relaxed, and you're go with the flow, and uh, thumbs up to you. Oh, Mary, that's... 
Thank you so much. But you're right. The first time I did this show, I was pretty nervous. It's a, yeah. a big yeah, change. Well, yeah, no, and why wouldn't you be? But you know, you 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 you're, you're lightening. I can I can feel the tension oh. easing out of your body <laughs> you're over so the phone, right. even over the radio. Okay, God bless you. Thank you so much. I'm taking that to my heart. Thank you, Mary. And we've got Lee on the line. Lee. Yes, um, I just uh, lost. People lost the ability to think these days. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, all we need to do is the, the health department has to tell us that this is dangerous. If you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. If you feel protected, you wear a mask. Yeah. If you don't want to, don't wear a mask. Yep. I mean, that's that's as simple as that. I, it seems like they were waiting for the government to tell us what we should do with our lives all the time. It's ridiculous. People just think for themselves. They don't. They know what's dangerous. What's not dangerous? Well, Lee, I have to agree with you on that. That's something I think about as well. Is you know, people. We have a lot of common sense, and yeah. we should be making good decisions for ourselves. And and um, you know, over the past two years, that seems to have drifted away. That people have become more and more reliant on having the government tell them this is what you need to do and not do it. And it's all great advice coming from the government. But it, it does come down to making good decisions for yourself and common sense. You and your family. I mean, what are we doing to our children? I've heard a child the other day ask the other child, um, can I see your face? Oh, like, it's just, just ridiculous. Oh, geez. It's just so ridiculous. I mean, uh, we have to be able to make decisions yeah. for ourselves. And we just can't not let the government do every decision especially health decisions for our own person. I mean, everybody, some people take care of their bodies. Some people don't. So if they don't take care of their bodies, I mean, they're obviously they're going to be more susceptible to these conditions. So uh, this is just people, like I said, I keep repeating myself, but mm-hmm. people have to look after themselves. What do you see? What do you see happening in the next few months with with people kind of wanting to take off a mask or wear it? You know, people that you talk to. What is the feedback you're getting? I I just simply tell them if you want to wear your mask, wear your mask. I if you, but don't make me do something I don't want to. I mean, it's just a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you feel safe with the mask, please wear it. If you don't, well, then that's your choice. And <laughs> I'm I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just I just I'm going to take every precaution that I need, mm-hmm. to, depending on my my own personal um, health. But you know, I I just see. I'm, I'm sure some people are going to just say, "Well, you should wear your mask to protect me," or whatever. I I, I see that coming, and the same as the vaccines. I, I some people are very upset that you don't take the vaccine, but. Uh, it's just a personal choice, and, and that's what it should be to everyone. You know, I love it. You, you know, common sense, make good choices for yourselves, and, and uh, take some responsibility back for your own health. Uh, wonderful right. advice, Lee. I'm with you on that. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay. So thank you. So we're heading off to news, and then when we come back, we're going to have a what I en- truly enjoy is, is um, kind of our pet peeves time. But this time, what I want to hear from you is what famous person have you ever met or who would you like to meet that's famous? Or have you ever been told you look like someone famous? And uh, if you've got a pet peeve, let's hear it too. Thanks so much. We're off to news.
peeve time. I don't know what else to call it, but pet peeves is a good way to start. But we're not just talking about pet peeves today. I want to hear from you. Who is the most famous person you have ever met? Or who would you like to meet? There must be some people out there who you'd love to meet. Or have you ever been told that you look like someone famous? So I can start off, and I'm talking with producer Polly, and I'm sure he's got some stories, but the, I don't think anything is going to beat the pet peeve shutter thing. And uh, the beautiful producer Brittany is here with me. Beautiful. The, the voice matches the beautiful face. No, thank you. You're very welcome. The $20, uh, you said you'd pay me if I said that. <laughs> it It'll be on your desk on the way out. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to lead it off because this is kind of a, this is pretty cool to lead off with. So when I was a mayor, I got to meet a lot of people and I'll tell you, on the outside, I would be really, you know, composed and cool. But inside, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting this person. The most famous person I ever met was the Queen of England. What? What? <laughs> She's like the out. most famous what? person in the world. She's pretty <laughs> famous. So when I was mayor, um, and that was during the days when Blackberry slash Rim were, were just at their peak, she came to Waterloo uh, with Prince with Prince Charles, and they toured some of the, the Rim facilities, but um, there's all sorts of people waiting, and everybody was, was waving their little flags, and all the war vets were out, and it was the hottest day of the year. It had to have been like 40 degrees with the, the um, humidity, and I was trying to look really, really officious, and I was just melting. I was sweating like a son of a gun. But she got out of the car, and she was she looked so beautiful, and she's little. She's really quite petite, and I can still remember everything she wore. And then um, I, you know, as a mayor, I, I said, you know, I also been given a huge binder to read about how you're to address them and what you know how you're supposed to curtsy and all this stuff so i um i was able to uh, extend my hand and shake her hand she's got this little tiny hand i felt like a huge huge person and i said oh welcome to waterloo you know i'm the mayor of waterloo welcome to waterloo your majesty and she said it's a beautiful place and i said yes it is and that was it and then she left and then prince charles came up and he was actually lovely and funny and sweet and it was really something. So, yeah, that, that I think is what... I haven't washed my hands since I shook her, honestly. <laughs> People look at me funny, but it's a special hand. So you went to Blackberry with the queen? When Did she ask for your pin number? Oh! Because oh! everyone had Blackberry. She had no, my BBM. Pin. What's your pin number? What's your pin? <laughs> no, she didn't. Him, him, him. What's and your pin? They gave I'll her. give you my pin. <laughs> no, the last pet peeve is you don't say pin number. You say it's your P.I number right i remember that pi number your pi number so so um no they gave her a special her own special blackberry it was like white and i don't know if it had diamonds on it or whatever but it's very very a exciting diamond blackberry it might have been just blingy stuff that wasn't diamonds but anyway it was very exciting to see her and to uh, ha- know that the queen came to waterloo i mean that yeah. is pretty pretty cool wow historical i well i guess in a way i breathe the same air as the queen so <laughs> just kidding what because huh? she was in waterloo oh, oh yeah her okay. air is still floating around <laughs> well i was outside buckingham palace when i went to london six years ago does that count did you see her was she in the window i didn't see her she's in the probably window. In the i don't window, even know maybe. if she was home that day she might have been out <laughs> doing queen things i don't know uh, all right queen how about things. you guys who have you met that's famous Polly, come on! You've been to Vegas. Who have you seen on the oh, Vegas, Vegas Strip? Yeah. You know, Elvis, I've never I bet. seen anybody. If I had, I'm not a big celebrity person. So if I have passed a big celebrity yeah. on the street, I wouldn't know it. <laughs> That's we, true. We went to go see <laughs> Penn and Teller, the magic show. Oh yeah. And after the magic show, as everybody's filing out, they're in the hallway, and you can say hi to them. So oh, okay, that might. 
be the uh, biggest celebrity I've ever all. met. Penn and <laughs> Teller. I mean, on the same along the same line when I was a kid, David Copperfield played the center in the square. Same sort of thing. You can kind of meet him on the way out. It was ten seconds. I don't know if that counts, but that's good. That's about we'll the take extent that. of my celebrity encounter. That's pretty cool. How about you, Britt? Um, okay, so I've had a few encounters, some positive, some not so positive. <laughs> um, the most positive one was I met Jerry O'Connell while I was working up north. Yeah, and he's cute. Got to do a, a sit-down interview with him. Who's that? I'm sorry. I don't even know the name. He was, oh my goodness. He's a comedian, but an actor comedian. Yeah, he's an actor. Guy. You, I think, Polly, you would, to see his face, you would mm-hmm. know him. Jerry O'Connell. O'Connell. Look him up. Yeah. Anyways, um, really nice guy. Really, really funny. Um, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> you I do. just didn't know his name. <laughs> yeah, he's been around since the 80s. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in Stand By Me. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I met him. Really nice guy. I met um, the son of Gene Simmons back when that that show the that they yeah. had was yeah. was on um his son is not a nice person I don't I, we won't tell him yeah that. very very awful encounter <laughs> that we had and then one time when we went to um to California my family and I we were walking down Rodeo Drive um of course we couldn't afford to shop on Rodeo Drive so we just walked on the street but we did go into one store and then we're quickly shuffled out because Whitney Houston That's was in really the store cool. wow mm-hmm. those are good all right we've got I, Lorraine on the line Lorraine who, who are Hold you on, going to tell us about go. a famous go, person? Yes, I have. Um, I met um, a singer. Um, we, we won tickets to go back to uh, a show and to, to go backstage. It was, um, I can't remember his name now. It was a folk singer from South Africa. But we went uh, to, and went, went down backstage and had our pictures taken. But locally, um, when young Mr. Trudeau was campaigning in um, Cambridge. He was at the mall, and it wasn't when, I mean, I'm just not sure if he was going for for uh, prime minister then or just for the leadership, but anyway, he was there, and the crowd was big and surging, and I got so close, like I think my face was about a foot away from his, and I think mm. he had a slight, slight dis- like displeasure, which I don't blame him at all. I was really in his space. <laughs> and the other one is that I also met uh, Roger Whitaker. That was the one. We oh, had, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom and I went and we saw him and met him and had our pictures taken with him. But also you asked about being looked like somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was at a restaurant with in Waterloo with my husband and his uh, sister and husband. And I said to the, to the girl, I said, that waiter looks like Omar Sharif. And so she went and blabbed <laughs> when he came to the floor, came to, to the table and said, she thinks you look like Omar Sharif. And he says, well, I think she looks like Nana Muscuri. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Mary, are you going to tell us about someone you met that's famous or someone that you might look like who's famous? Yes, 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 Brenda. Uh, my uncle is Howie Meeker. Oh, wow. You're probably too Somehow young to I remember. knew Mary was going to say that. Howie Meeker, Somehow. yeah. <laughs> I've got some signed stuff. Um, I told him he has passed away last November 8th. And I told him um, I'm hanging on to it till he kicks the bucket because it'll be worth a lot more. 
and he thought that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it'd be hard to part with it now, eh? Well, I'm not going to do it. Uh, however, um, the other uh, thing was is that um, a few people have said I looked like uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Wow. And I say, what? What? You must be very beautiful. No way. No way. Now, Polly knows me, and I'm known as Hot Pants Mary. (laughs) This is Radio Mary. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but no, I don't want to meet anybody from the station because I don't, I'm not look, I don't look like Elizabeth Taylor in my eyes. Oh, Mary, I'm sure you're beautiful. Well. It's in the eyes of the beholder. My husband tells me every morning, you're beautiful. And I said, but you don't have your glasses on. No. Why don't you just take his compliment? Yeah, I know. He's telling the truth. Thanks so much, Mary. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Chris, what's the story? Hello. Hi. So I've actually met Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in L.A., when it was 2016 and they were trying to get the Olympic Games that ended up going to Rio. And what surprised me the most about him, and it's probably most famous people that you meet, he was much shorter than I expected him to be. Oh, really? So he's not that big and imposing of a guy? No, no. I would say he's probably six foot or maybe just under or just over. Wow. That's a surprise. Yeah, and I also had met uh, Sylvester Stallone probably in 89 or 90 in Florida. They were filming the movie Oscar, and he came through meeting people, shaking hands. And he was another guy. I'm 5'10", and he was shorter than me. I was like, man, they must either wear flats or razors in their shoes. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I was quite surprised. But Arnold, he was pretty cool down to earth. That's a real. That's cool to, yeah. to meet him. That's really cool. Thanks for calling in, Chris. Great. No, pro- no problem. Take care. You too, love. Okay, Marianne, we want to hear your story. I'm Marianne here. I somebody I would love to meet. I I would love to meet Dolly Parton and go to her go to her show and yeah. go to Dollywood. I would just love to. Meet oh, Dolly. Yeah. I love country music. And you know she's so amazing. Eh? the things that she does. Mm-hmm. She's a wonderful oh, she's person. Amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. I love her. I love her. I have lots of her music, and I love her. Well, maybe she'll come to town someday, and you'll get to meet her. That would be lovely. And if I'd ever have the chance, maybe I can go to Bollywood. Yeah. Now, now things are opening up. We can actually go to places. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Marianne. Okay, we've got Doug on the line. Doug, what are you going to tell us? Oh, hi, I'm Doug here. Um, I, I met somebody one time, it wasn't exactly a face-to-face meeting, but it was the most important meeting of my life. Nowadays, he's so famous, the history of the world is divided into two parts, before him and in the year of him. <laughs> that's Jesus. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, you're so right. Okay. Thank you. All right, we've got Joe on the line. Joe, I'm ready to hear your story. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, thanks for asking. Um, Back in the mid to uh, late 60s, I shook the hand of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Great, that's cool. Yeah, and the way it happened, you know, was was he was here for a convention. Maybe one of your listeners can look it up and, and kind of see when he was here. I don't remember the exact year, but all I know is myself and a few of my buddies 
uh, we were running through these fields. There was a lot of fields around there at that time. <laughs> and we ran up to his limo just as he was um, leaving, right? And um, we stuck our hand in. I looked right at him and shook my hands and said, hello. I didn't wash that hand for a whole week. And my mom finally <laughs> said, you got to wash your hand. Okay? Yeah, you do. You've got to <laughs> yeah. wash your hand. Yeah, that, that's what great. I'd like to have happen, if I could, is... Um, I like to shake Justin Trudeau's hand so I can say that I shook the father and the son's oh, hand. That's very, but I'm yeah. I'm a regular guy, so I don't think that's ever going to happen. But it would be neat, though, right? That'd be really neat. Well, you never know, because he, you know, he does come around this area the odd time. Hopefully that would happen. Brian, love to hear your story. I've been really lucky. My, my um, son and I, uh, as a hobby, we started collecting uh, autographs of hockey players, NHL players, 20 years ago. So we've met about 1,500 NHL players. Wow. So if you name an NHL player, I can probably give you a story about meeting them. Bobby Orr. Bobby is really, really nice. He doesn't like to sign a lot of stuff without personalizing it, though, because he knows people sell his autograph, but he's a super nice guy. Wow, you do know. That's about the only hockey player I could think of because I'm not a hockey star. But that's very cool, Brian. Thanks for calling in. Now we've got Sean on the line. Sean, let's hear it. Well, in 1983, I was in Ottawa at a convention, and I won't mention the party, but you can probably guess, and I got to meet Brian Mulroney, and I met Joe Clark, and <laughs> John Crosby, and Peter Pawkinson even, and he had Wayne Gretzky with him. It's quite interesting. That's that's a group of Canadiana, if there ever was one. Yeah, I was coming from Cambridge at the time, so it's like, it was a very interesting convention. Well, that's great. Thanks for calling in. All right, Lorraine, love to hear what you've got to tell us. I have another one. Um, in, in the 1960s, we went to Toronto to see Liberace, and we were late, and we sort of waited in the wings until the first uh, song was over, and then we squished in and tried to do so unobtrusively, but we were in the second row, mid-second mid row, and Liberace came right to the edge of the stage, and he says, well, so glad you could make it. And this is what you missed. And he showed him, showed us his diamonds and, oh, wow. and showed it, everything on his lapels and everything like that. So that was kind of embarrassing and fun at the same time. He was a great entertainer. He was an amazing yes, guy. Eh? Yes, he really was. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Okay, bye. And Rudy, tell us, share. I used to work uh, security during Oktoberfest at Concordia Club, and I did it for about 12 years. And one year, I actually got to shake John Candy's hand. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. That's awesome. He's one of I, I my favorites. I thought it was fantastic. Was he sweet and lovable? He was very nice. Very. He, he was a little inebriated at the time. But he was so <laughs> Who <friendly>. isn't? <laughs> yeah. And he's very... <laughs> You know, he's a big guy, and he's there, you know, the way he moves around like an yeah. Uncle Buck, and, he's, and mm. he went up, and he shook my hand, and it, it was great. That I is great. It perfectly. Well, that's a wonderful memory. Thanks so much, Rudy. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. And we got Jerry on the line. Let's hear from you, Jerry. Good afternoon again. Um, well, I got two, um, and they're back into the mid-90s, uh, I used to work in the forest industry on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and a good friend of mine was a charter captain with the Oak Bay Marine Group out of Ukulet. And if they were ever short-staffed on a weekend, they, he would give me a call and get me to go. And 
he called me that one day and he I said, Look, I'm tired, long week, long week, I can't go. He would not take no for an answer. So I drove all the way over to the other side of the island and as I'm arriving early in the morning, he gives me the itinerary for the day and I'm, and he's looking and I I'm like, Okay, I'm supposed to be seeing something here and then I finally pick up on the name that was Robert De Niro and a couple of the people that he hung around with. So we got to fish with them for the day, where I was part of the crew. Um, definitely, I couldn't realize, I didn't realize how short he was, but a great guy. It was a great day, very down to earth. You know, it was probably one of the more enjoyable days I've ever had fishing. Uh, and the second one was the following year, where my boss and I were avid fishermen. We used to do a lot of fly fishing, and we were fishing the west coast or east coast of Vancouver Island, a place called Black Creek. On a Sunday morning, fishing for cutthroat and coho that were close to shore. And there's this gentleman standing out by himself, fly fishing. And we just got a little closer, and he turned, and he said, good morning. And it was like, I recognize that <laughs> voice. And my boss teased me. He says, Jerry, you say you know everybody. I said, no, I know that voice. And it turned out to be Sean Connery. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. Yeah, That's Sean really Connery great. And, he said it was one of his favorite places in the entire world to fish. He was an avid fly fisherman, being a Scotsman. Now, completely opposite to Robert De Niro, he was huge. I did not realize how big that man was. Like, he's a big guy, but very friendly. And the only thing he'd asked us to do was just keep it to ourselves for the last few days he was there, just to enjoy some peace and quiet. But we got to fish uh, part of a morning with, with him, and it was a great experience. Oh, it sure was. Wow, what a great experience, Trey. Thank you so much. So we got to go to a quick break, and then we've got Laura Lee and Hugh on the line waiting to call tell us their stories. Okay, so we've been having a great discussion and lots of people calling in about who they've met who's famous or who they'd like to meet who's famous or maybe a pet peeve. And Laura Lee, thank you so much for hanging on for so long. I'd love to hear from you. First-time caller, I often have lots to say, but this is a fun reason to call in. So, (laughs) um, not my story. It's my mom and dad's. They were um, in Nashville with a country-western promoter at the Grand Ole Opry, and they met Minnie Pearl. Oh, wow. (laughs) She sent a limousine to their motel (gasps) to pick them up and took them out for dinner. (laughs) And why did she do that? Um, she just met them, and, and they kind of clicked, and so she just took them over dinner. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I guess, you know, you have to be in our venerable age group to know who she was, but she was an adorable, adorable performer, and that yeah, little well, tag off her hat, remember? Yes, yes, and they said that she was just absolutely as, you know, wonderful as she was on stage. So, oh, anyway, I love that's it. That's my fun story. That's Not a great mine, story. A good one. <laughs> oh, thanks, love. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Hugh, thank you for hanging on. Now, it's got to be the best story of the day. How are you, Brenda? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? Not bad. Uh, when I was a boy, I caddied at Lambton Park, uh, Lambton Golf Course in Toronto. Yeah. And during the uh, Leaf Stanley Cup years, I uh, caddied for Frank Mahovlich, oh. Dick Duff, and uh, Tom Stanley. Wow, that must have been amazing. Now, were you uh, like just kind of starstruck when you saw them? Well, I was. Yeah, I was pretty nervous. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I did a good job and kept sight of the balls. That's a great story, Hugh. Thanks so much for telling us that. Wow, they were very nice guys. You know, they usually are, aren't they? Well, we've had some really great fun with this show, and I'll I'll leave you with one more. So. 
Um, I did meet Stephen Hawking when he came here, when the Perimeter Institute was hosting a, a big event. And I remember just sitting watching him and, and how, you know, because he had so many um, issues with, with movement, of course, mobility and, and uh, speaking in that. But he asked me through, through his machine where he could go for a cold beer on a patio. It was the summer and where he would go shopping to buy clothes for his, his uh, kids. So that was really something because you think somebody like Stephen talking, who's just so brilliant and, you know, the world renowned and, and uh, he just wants to have a beer on the patio and, and just be real. That was really something for me. That was another highlight of, of uh, my time in the big seat. So thank you so much for everybody who called in. It's, that, was, that was really, really great. And um, on our next segment, the final one of, of today, I'm going to have two business owners um, come and tell us what it was like for them through COVID and how they've survived and the whole pandemic um, situation for them. I think it's really important that we hear from our local business and how we can support them and what they went through. Time for news. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Brenda Halloran, your guest host today for Kitchener Today. And it's been a lot of fun to show. And uh, thank you to all the callers who have called in and shared a lot of interesting things with us. We had talked to about, have you ever been told uh, somebody that you resemble? And for me, what was really fun is that I was told I looked like uh, the uh, singer on ABBA, but I was really young then. And my husband was told that, and he's been stopped several times, actually, when we've been traveling in the States, that he looks like George Lucas, which makes us both laugh because George Lucas is, weighs about 100 pounds more than him. But, you know, it's really, it's so flattering and it's a lot of fun. So um, next time I come back, let's, let's hear from some callers who've been told who they look like someone famous. So now for the last half hour of Kitchener today, I'd like to, I always like to talk to business people in our community because COVID has, uh, the pandemic has been really, really impactful on their businesses and they've had to do a lot of pivoting, a lot of just trying to figure out how they're going to manage day to day, how they're going to pay their bills and the emotional toll that has taken on them over the past two years. And I, I'm really excited to speak to my next, next guest, Robert Brusky, who was actually on the front page of the record on Monday. And he is the CEO of, of Control V, which uh, he's going to tell us all about. But, you know, these stories are pretty impactful and we need to hear them and we need to support these, our local businesses. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Yo, it's Chicken Brenda. Yeah. How you doing, B? <laughs> Uh, I'm okay. How are you? Okay. Okay. <laughs> great. Just great. How wonderful to hear your voice. So so tell us about Control V. Um, I mean, I want your autograph now. You're famous. You're front page of the <laughs> local record, and there was a great picture of you. What's it been like for the past two years, Robert? Oh, man. Well, you know what? For, for anyone who's listening, first I should uh, lay out what Control V mm-hmm. is. So Control V is a virtual reality arcade. Um, in Waterloo, we're located roughly at around the corner of Columbia and Phillip. But we're also a franchise system. So we've got locations across Ontario, Alberta. We've got locations in Delaware, Texas, all based out of Waterloo here. Um, and so the, and I mean, you know, the buzzword that everyone's talking about these days is metaverse, which is exactly what we're in. There's a lot of cryptocurrency and blockchain. And of okay, course, slow down, fantastic. slow down. Yep. <laughs> okay, you understand what all these words mean. But I, I? I, like, I know you should. But I don't know. Okay. What's, what the heck's metaverse? 
Okay. So metaverse basically is a fancy way of saying any digital world, right? So mm-hmm. back in the 80s or 90s when you booted up your Atari or your Nintendo and you turned on Super Mario Brothers, you were in the Super Mario Brothers metaverse. You were watching it on a screen. And now as technology has developed and you put on a virtual reality headset, you are now in a virtual reality metaverse. There's just a lot more buzz around Metaverse these days because Facebook had changed their name to Meta, and they put something like $10 billion into developing their own Metaverse. So ultimately, Control-V is everyone's sort of gateway or access into the Metaverse. And we've got games where you can shoot zombies. You know, we've got educational content. You can learn to dissect frogs or play with chemistry and astronomy. There's escape rooms in VR. So that's kind of Metaverse, yeah. So tell us what it's been like for the past two years when you've been having to open and shut. Um, it has been uh, horrifically arduous, <laughs> I'll put it that yeah. way. Um, and more specifically for us, because we aren't just a single location, we do have franchise locations across two countries. And so we're, we're responsible for them and helping them survive. You know, we were basically in survival mode rather than thriving, not just financially, but even mindset-based. Um, and there was a lot of uncertainty, um, specific, you know, between regions, even municipalities and regions, because they didn't know how to classify us. You know, mm. you, sometimes we're classified as a water park, which we aren't. Sometimes no. we're classified as a casino, which mm. we aren't. Um, like we have 16 people, 16 stations. That's the max amount of people that we have in our arcades. They're all distanced by 10 feet and walls separating them. And we had a sanitize everything even before it was cool because of the nature of the business Mm -hmm. so we were probably the most covid friendly business and unfortunately we were always the first to lock down and the last to get out of lockdown how have you survived um you know i made friends with jack daniels and uh (laughs) (laughs) no we we've survived um from, from a number of different standpoints. One is, you know, being fairly prudent and conservative with our, our cash flow runway and how to allocate that, working with, you know, landlords. Um, but also the big thing was mindset. Um, that's the big thing that I've noticed among so many businesses that were affected by yeah. COVID. You know, just constantly thinking like, this is never going to end. You know, I'm down on my luck. We had to build that up. And so, We deployed a number of different things that we could do during lockdown, like revamping a lot of our systems and processes, building out a new marketing infrastructure, um, getting involved in, um, you know, the blockchain and cryptocurrency, which I'm sure you've heard about Mm -hmm. as well. So we just kept a whole bunch of exciting things happening so that we can make it through to the end. So, you know, your quote is, are people going to come back? What's your biggest fear? Um. Honestly, I'm not too worried about people coming back um, because what we have is so compelling and word spreads like wildfire and the nature of the virtual reality industry is just becoming so much more prevalent in our day-to-day life and in real estate and sales and things like that. My, My worry is just about us not letting people come back because we have to go into lockdown again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's almost like PTSD for, for a business person. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Here we go again. I hope yeah. my kickboxing gym is open because I need to start pounding those bags. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about, like, you're a local business person, right? And you created this technology and you're taking it global? 
yeah, I mean, world domination is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our mission is basically to um, bring immersive technology to as many people as possible, whether it's in big metropolitan areas or suburban areas or even like far out northern communities, which we're working on a few partnerships right now to get that rolling. Um, because there's so many fantastic benefits that can come from this, you know, in medicine, in training, first responder training. But unfortunately, a lot of people aren't jumping on that yet because, you know, they've got this predisposed notion that virtual reality is still very futuristic and for NASA only or just gamers. But I'll tell you that, you know, some of the most common ordinary people come in to play virtual reality. It doesn't matter your age. We've got four-year-olds and 94-year-olds. It doesn't matter your gender or your your skill set at using technology mm-hmm. because we put so much emphasis on our customer service. So what do people do when they come to, to Control-V? Um, walk us usually through it because people, most people won't know what this is. So, so walk us through it and tell us, you know, I'm walking through the door. What can I expect? Perfect. Okay, so usually somebody will book in advance online on our website, uh, controlv.ca, which is spelt like the control button on your keyboard, C-T-R-L, and then the letter V.ca, or controlvarcade.com. And they book online, they, they pick how many stations they want, how many people are coming, they make their payment, they fill out their liability waiver, etc., So when they arrive, they check in, and then they'll watch an explainer video that shows them how to get into their stations. When the explainer video is over, they'll see their names on their allocated stations. They'll go there. They'll put on a VR headset that covers their eyes. They'll put on controllers that they put in their hands, and they're immediately immersed in virtual reality. And then as soon as they're in, the first thing they, they see is our proprietary control suite software, which is basically just like a virtual reality playground where they can see everyone else and start messing around with different buttons and features and get accustomed to it. And then once they're ready, they can jump into one of over 200 different experiences that we have, and they can swim with whales, hang out with gorillas or, or you know, dinosaurs, or they can go shoot zombies. We just released a huge pack of um, uh, virtual reality Escape rooms developed by RV Labs right out of Ukraine, which I'm sure everyone listening knows what's going on in yeah. Ukraine right now. So we've been working very closely with them to support them. Um, you know, there's music and dance games. It's just there's such a variety for everyone. And what's the age limitation? Like, what, how how young can somebody be to come and do this? You could be as young as you want. I mean, the <laughs> only limitation is how big your head is. Like, if you put on the goggles, then you become top-heavy and fall over. Then <laughs> maybe you're a little too young. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. So um, do your, your final pitch so that we can get you some business. All right. Let's see. I'll, I'm going to make this up on the spot. You, you know? should. Have you been wondering how to break away from the COVID nightmare? Did you want to escape reality and experience the most immersive technology on the planet? Well, you've come to the right place. Check out www.controlvrk.com for a once in a lifetime or multiple times in a day experience in virtual reality and the metaverse. You won't regret it and stay frosty. Love it. That That was really good. (laughs) I'm going to sign up. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. And, you know, I've I've, uh, been totally inspired by your story of how you created this this business. You're taking it global and you're putting Waterloo on the map. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, hey, everybody, if you want to try something really cool, check out Control Control V. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks, Brenda. It's always awesome talking to you. You too, love. Bye-bye.
Wow, that was exciting. Okay, so now we have somebody who we, every single person I think in this community knows, and everybody loves this person. And this person does so much for this community. Um, it's Chef D. I don't, I don't even know what to say for an intro. Everybody knows you love. <laughs> and Chef D has been uh, two years um, keeping afloat and keeping his business going, but doing a lot of community give back and helping others. And and um, I just saw him recently. I haven't seen him in a long time because we've all been locked away. And I just saw him and I said, oh, my gosh, we need to hear from you. What it's been like over the past two years. What are you doing and what can we expect in the future? So how's it, how has the uh, impact of the pandemic affected you? I think it's it, it, one, of course, it, it hurt us a little bit financially um, to start off with. But then we picked up and we pivoted. We transitioned. We took some chances. Um, I think I've took, taken more chances in my life in the last two years mm-hmm. than in the last 50 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but again, you know, giving back to the community, that's always been our mantra. That's always been, you know, the community has supported us, whether it be on our, our TV show, on to people coming out to any one of our places and dining or, you know, attending events that we're in. So it just, it's, it's hand in hand, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I think this last this last go-round was the hardest one. The last shutdown, it just seemed that people didn't come back. We do a lot of catering, and in February, I think we did four caterings, you know. And what would you um, normally have even, had? Oh, um, and we were between 14 and 24, depends wow. on, you know, how that, yeah. that month looks like, right? And then also, too, leading up to the Christmas season, that last week where everything just kind of fell off the rails out of the... 11 events that we had booked for that week, two of them rebooked for this, you know, that have been rebooked and redone. But other than that, they just kind of went away. And how do you manage that? As you know, you're, you're a self-employed business person. How have you managed that? Just emotionally, kind of just, what's it been like? It's been tough. This last one has been really tough to keep the, the smile on my face yeah. and to... Um, to work through this, you know, like there's a lot of sleepless nights and people say, well, you don't sleep a lot. Hmm. And, you know, there's some of it's um, concern and, and, and that. And um, I have a really great team behind me. So, you know, I want to make sure that they their paychecks always come out, you know, that type of thing. So I think, uh, yeah, it has been tough. Um, but, you know, we're, we're gearing up. We're getting ready. It's going to be exciting we got lots of lots of cool things on the on the um, agenda for this summer, and it just seems like our our our, uh, our whole business is transitioning into a summer business, and a lot less in the fall, which and winter, which is fine. Which means maybe at some point we can add south sooner than later. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you're, are you still wearing your shorts all the time? All the time, twenty four seven, three sixty five. Yeah, and when people, when they see him, he's got shorts on and it's snowing out and he's wearing flip-flops and shorts. And this man always believes that summer is coming. It is. It truly is. And, you know, Brenda, I, I do really think summer's coming. The good times are coming. Yeah. We're, we're coming back through this. We, You know, as it's funny. The one time I, I, I thought about us as an industry, as a, a hospitality industry, you know, it's not it's not for everybody. It's hard. You know, it's hard working in, in, hot, in hot situations. It's hard working every Saturday, Sunday, you know, so I think we, we were ready um, as, a, as a community of, of hospitality workers that we can make it through this. And, and my friends have, and, and I'm excited, and I'm excited to sit on patios, mm-hmm. have cold beverages and great yeah. food throughout the region. Yep. 
How many of your friends never came back with their business, do you think? What's, what's the toll been like in this community? I think it's bigger than what we realize. Um, a couple, like I would say associates, um, they aren't coming back, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with um, the owner of Platters Catering in Guelph, and three big caterers in Guelph closed throughout oh. this time. So, Jeez. you know, I think um, as we get through this again and, and subsidies are gone and it takes a while and realize, oh, my word, we have a, we have some debt behind us, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, debt as in keeping, like I mentioned, our our staff hired through all this, you know. So yeah. I think we have to be really careful as an industry to take small steps and then maybe, um, you know, um, we'll be able to be successful that way. Now you have a new venture that you um, you've just acquired something. So tell us about that. <laughs> it's bit, this is um, big. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Lord knows. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Right, exactly. So Nithridge Estates and Air is an outdoor wedding venue um, concert facility. You can come out and see the horses. We have there's a beautiful barn that has a super big. Um, uh, commissary kitchen that we can start using for more and more catering. Um, I like the idea of being able to be by the river. Um, my daughter's going to be, um, our daughter, Trisha and I's daughter, going to be running the facility and they're going to be living on the property. Um, and I wanted Lauren to be part of the company for a while. So this is a really cool thing. Hey, keep going. You okay. Keep telling us about it. You'll be very polite. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, um, we have um, con- our first concerts in May um, is Jack DeKaiser and Andrew Basson, a blues kind of review. Um, we're doing a free concert for the community um, in June. It's, and I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it's around June 24th, the Thursday. Freedom, Freedom Train from Hamilton is going to come up and rock the joint. And we're raising all the money for the Willett Hospital in Paris. Um, and then we're just in negotiations with our good friend Jim Cuddy to come in July. And then we're going to do an 80s night with bands like, and we haven't confirmed them, but we've talked to Honeymoon Suite. Oh, wow. Tiger, Prism, and Barney Bental. So, um, you know, just kind of doing a Thursday night music in the air. And we're also going to do some big band and some um, breakfast and, sorry, breakfast brunch on Sundays, big band and jazz music on Sundays. And you can also come out if you have an event um, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday and be in this really cool cool area we have mariel who is going to be our head gardener um it's fantastic we're also doing can i quickly tell yep, you keep going. something really cool at the market we have our bakery division and we're opening up a sandwich shop in april 1st um one with some really great pastrami on rye we're going to do a clubhouse on a croissant um braised um brisket and a whole bunch more so look for that we'll be opening up at april 1st no April Fool's in put intended there. <laughs> now, is that um, going to be no, at Nithridge? No, it, that's going to be at the Kitchen Market. Gotcha. At the Kitchen Market. Mm-hmm. So, and you're doing weddings at Nithridge too, right? 100%, 100% weddings. Um, and we still have Fridays available. If anybody's looking for Fridays this summer at Nithridge, um, please reach out to us and we can can get you there. And if you need an officiant, I have a person that I know that would do a great yeah. job for you. <laughs> well, you know, Nithridge really is beautiful. And I didn't really know much about it until recently. And it is a gem in this in this area. So I highly recommend that you go. But to have all that music coming back, Shefty, all that music and events, and we get to be together. And 
like I say, we're just, you know, let, let's just release the smiles and get the masks off, the, those of us who want to stop wearing them, and just mm-hmm. uh, just see each other's face again. Honestly. 100%. And it'll be so amazing. I think it'd just be so, um, you know, we, you were at the show this past Sunday, and it was just so great to be in front of people yeah. and talking and, and sharing your passion and, and what we can do for you. And I know everybody at each booth shared the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. And I actually said to one bride and groom, and I'm sorry, I said, I'm sorry for being so eager, but <laughs> you haven't done this for a while. I haven't talked know? to anybody. <laughs> you know? It's so, so true. Yeah. This is really cool. It is really cool. Well, thank you for everything you do in the community. And I know um, whenever I go somewhere, you just seem to be there and and helping and providing food and comfort for people. And, you know, I just think of you as a local hero, and I really appreciate what you do and and Trish and the family. And um, thank you for surviving for the past few years and staying here, Shefty, and, and keeping things going. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for the kind words, and thanks for having me on today, and and looking forward to seeing you out and about more mm-hmm. often. And again, thanks so much. We'll see you on a, see you having a cold beer on a on a patio someday. Out maybe out okay. at your place because we're coming out for some of these these amazing concerts. Can't wait. Okay. Thank, thank you. you so much, Chef D. Well, two amazing businesses, completely different, and they survived the past two years. And I think that, for me, I just want to showcase these people, these incredible, resilient business leaders in our community and what they've had to go through and the financial sacrifices and, and you know, what the families have had to deal with. It hasn't been easy, and these these uh, businesses are, are hanging on, so let's support them and go out to them. So I'm going to now ask Polly to take us to a break. Well, it's been quite a show today, and I want to thank all of you for listening and spending time with me. You know, it's really interesting when you, you do a talk show and you're here at a microphone and, and you get to look at producer Polly, and, and that's about all you're surrounded by. And then the phones ring, and then you get to talk with people and hear so many fun things. And, and you know, it's, it's just all about us and being together and, and getting back into communicating and socializing and and. Being, being part of what the world was like two years ago will still be impacted. We all have been affected in, in our own personal ways. But the bottom line is we're going to be moving forward. We see there, is, there is a bright light coming ahead. The businesses we're talking to are, are getting back on their feet, and they're going to need our support. So hopefully, you know, if you can go and check them out, the ones that we've had on so far, or order from them or, or go to their premises support them and let's see help keep them going we learned a lot today about what is happening in ukraine we learned about airbnb and what they're doing we talked about masks and we also talked about you know who fam- the famous people in the world we met and we found out that arnold schwarzenegger is not that tall i think that was quite a profound things to find out thank you all for ca- calling in thank you mary for your lovely words to me i, I really appreciate that i'll be back next monday And uh, have a nice afternoon. Stay safe and hug the ones you love. Thank you.